From the Princeton University School of Engineering and Applied Science, this is Cookies, a podcast about technology, privacy, and security. I'm Aaron Nathans. On this podcast, we'll discuss how technology has transformed our lives, from the way we connect with each other, to the way we shop, work, and consume entertainment. And we'll discuss some of the hidden trade-offs we make as we take advantage of these new tools. Cookies, as you know, can be a tasty snack but they can also be something that takes your data. On today's episode, we'll talk nuts and bolts about how you can improve your privacy in your everyday use of web browsers, email, text messaging, and other apps. Our guest is David Sherry, the Chief Information Security Officer here at Princeton. He's responsible for shoring up security at an Ivy League campus, both for those on campus and remote, With nearly 1,300 faculty members, more than 5,000 undergrads, nearly 3,000 grad students, roughly 7,000 staff members, and more, he has 20 years of experience in information security management. He can, and often does, speak publicly about how he manages to herd all those cats to make Princeton safer for technology. But today, he's going to do something different. He's agreed to provide tips that anyone can use to improve their privacy in their own digital lives. Let's get started. David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Aaron. Happy to be here. All right. What exactly is the concept of privacy? Is it is it just your name, your address, and social security number, or does it encompass more? Hmm. Well, concept is an interesting term to use for privacy. I think you have to go back really to what would be a definition of privacy. If you look up any of the uh encyclopedias or any dictionaries, they would say probably three things about privacy. One, it's the quality or state of being apart from company or observation. That's probably what most people think about. Uh, It's the state of being concealed or hidden when you make something private. And the third one is freedom from unauthorized intrusion. And that's really part of my job every day is that aspect of privacy, the freedom of unauthorized intrusion. And certainly, you know, I think it's a lot more than just your name and your address and your social security number. Uh, So much more than that now. Um, Privacy in this day and age, 2021, maybe even like the last 10 years, it includes your shopping habits, uh, driving records, medical diagnosis, Maybe your work history, your financial history, credit scores, a password ID combination, something I take to heart. It can be your likes and dislikes on social media. Um, You can lose your privacy donating to a charity, visiting a doctor, um, surfing the web, joining a gym, paying your mortgage, going through a toll booth, uh, walking with your phone, driving through an intersection. I could go on and on. Uh, Making an online purchase. There's just so many things. And Not just that, it can be lost through third parties and databases and connections and selling and buying. So I think really the concept of privacy now is really about people taking control. Uh, There was a book written uh, in 1967 called Privacy and Freedom. 1967, think about that. Uh, And it says, privacy is the claim of an individual, a group, or an institution to determine for themselves when how and to what extent information about them is communicated to others. So I think if you're talking concept, I really think this is about taking control. What's yours is yours. People have different levels of privacy aspects, but it's about taking control. Some people call it a basic human impulse. 
Some people want it to be a basic human right. I think it's a combination of both of them. But at the end of the day, uh, it's much more than name, address, and social security number. And it's something that we all need to be conscious of. So what's changed in the realm of privacy over the last 25 years? Wow. Uh, A lot has happened in 25 years. Think about what the maelstrom or the tsunami of changes in technology we've seen. You know, email would probably be in its infancy 25 years ago. The rise of personal computers, certainly just the global explosion of the public internet, but social media, GPS systems, uh, identity theft, identity crime, identity syndicates, the internet of things, you know, Alexa and Siri and thinking about connecting your car and your coffee pot and your light switches to the internet all brings privacy aspects. Mm -hmm. Um, And then just breaches, you know, that's been a big impact on privacy recently. Almost every adult in the United States and many abroad got Equifaxed many years ago. And, you know, that brought privacy to the forefront as well. So it's not just what we do, it's what others do to handle our privacy that can have an impact. And certainly that's been one of the big things in the last 25 years. Sure. I mean, so with all of these new digital tools that we have to make our lives better, few of us have any doubts that we're paying for these tools with our private information. I mean, after all, we can see the customized ads and the email lists that we didn't sign up for. To all those folks who say, and I know a lot of people like this, who say, I know my privacy is being invaded and that's just the price of admission. What do you say to that? Once again, I come back to this taking control and people just need to uh, pay a little bit more attention to that because um, saying it's just the price of admission or I love the one that I hear a lot, Aaron, is I've got nothing to hide. You know, mm. it doesn't really matter. That one just drives me crazy. But um, is, it re- is it <sighs> because everyone, it's not that we're worried about uh, someone uh, you know, if you don't have a criminal record or if you haven't declared bankruptcy, but just having uh, the basic uh, building blocks of an identity can be used against other people. So even though you have nothing to hide, knowing pets' names, knowing dates of birth, knowing where you've lived, knowing what you do for work, knowing what your likes, your dislikes, your my, your religious um, affiliation, your political affiliation, that puts enough of a group of items together that you could be at risk. So. Um, I don't like the combination of people saying, ah, it's just the price of living now and I really have nothing to hide. I mean, is it really, when you look, especially on a cell phone, you're downloading an app on Mm -hmm. a cell phone, something that is so easy. Everyone does it. And as you go through it, there's a little thing that pops up that says this application will have access to. It's a very shortened version of the old end user license agreements, Eulers, that used to get when you buy a piece of software and it was, you know, a readme text that was 30 pages long. And, Mm -hmm. but it's so easy to read this control. And a a perfect example is uh, a few years ago, the Olympics were going on and my family and I really enjoy following medal counts. And I said, well, I'm just going to look for an app that will just give me an up-to-date list of who has the medals in my country. So I found this one that was free. And when I went to download it, it says, uh, you supply this app with access to your photos, your location, your contacts, and to read your text messages. Mm. Now, if I was not a crazy person about privacy and security like I am, I might have just said, oh, what the heck. And now this app that I have no idea who wrote it, where it was written, how secure it is, who owns it, has access to all of my text messages and my phone calls and my, my pictures. To me, that's crazy. I took control at that time and I said, nope, I'm just, I'm going to go on. I ended up buying an app that was $7.99 for the space, for the use of two weeks because it didn't have access to anything on my phone. 
you knew what to look for in the in the the fine print, though most folks don't. Yeah, but but it happened. I, once again, I'm not going back to those crazy end user license agreements. That even I read those things too because they're fascinating to me. Uh, but yeah. it's so easy on it's one screen on your iPhone or your Android device, or it uh-huh. even pops up and says, "Do you allow this to have access to your camera? You allow this to have access to your text messages?" And people really just says it just like that. It just they can just pop up depending on what application, uh, what uh, operating system you're using. It makes it really easy. It's not anything that's behind or just reading before you download it before you click install. It usually says what it has access to. If people just take a second and think that through. Uh, everyone be a little bit more safer on this thing that we know now is the internet. So something I run into a lot here at, at Princeton, a lot of the savviest folks in this area avoid social media entirely. Hmm. How much more privacy does that buy you by doing that? I mean, is there a way to 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 use social media in a more private way, or is is once you open that door, are you you know do, do you encounter all the trade offs? Hmm. Uh, so yes and no on that. Certainly, it can buy you more privacy um, if you avoid. It, it buys you a lot of privacy if you avoid it entirely. It's not totally being private because there are other ways on the internet that can grab your information. But social media, we're just regurgitating stuff into social media. We do a class at Princeton about uh, handling online presence. And one of the things we say is just don't share as much. Does does everyone really have to know that you went to Taco Bell for lunch or you're going on such and such a vacation? So just sharing less information is uh, a big part of that. There's no rule that says you have to use factual information on this. Some people use assumed names and an assumed picture um, just to be able to, you know, I have a a friend who, um, I don't have a Facebook account. My wife has a Facebook account with five five people on it, our mom and dad and our three adult children. And we use that just to get pictures of our grandchildren in an easy and quick way. I have a a neighbor that says the same exact thing, an assumed name with an assumed picture, has no other friends except just a few family members. So that's certainly a way to uh, be able to use the power of social media without giving away um, without giving away private information. And then there are the real zealots for it that want to use it, but all they do is consume. They just consume, consume, consume. They use it for their news digest. They use it to see what other people are doing, and they absolutely don't post anything. They are just a, a consumer and not adding to it. So uh, there are ways to do it. Once again, it's it's balance. Everyone has a different level of security. Some people are comfortable talking about uh, their salary. Some people aren't. Some people leave their houses unlocked. Some people don't. Some people put their blinds down. Some people don't. Some people like don't want to go through the scanners at the TSA. Some people don't. It's all about a level of privacy. Everyone has a different level and has to find their own sweet spot. Once you enter social media, do they then have the ability to just, just grab everything of yours and uh, or is it what you volunteer? Hmm. So they certainly can start connecting dots. Um, if you're using similar email addresses, you know, sooner or later, those email addresses are going to get uh, matched up together. If you're using uh, browsers that may not have the, the right protections, they can match up. So technology people, technology companies are very savvy and they stop putting the building blocks together and building almost like a digital dossier on someone saying, oh, well, this browser did that. And this account did this, but then I saw Aaron do this and I saw David do that. So Aaron and David might be the same person because they have enough things connecting to each other that we can make an assumption that, yeah, this is really the same person. So that can Mm. be done. Mm. That's scary. It is. So what is a web browser? Okay. 
by definition, it's just a piece of software that you run on a computer or any other device, a laptop or a handheld, that allows you to get access to internet websites. You're actually browsing, it's like instead of going to uh, Barnes and Noble many years ago and browsing the bookshelves, you're using your this piece of software known as a browser to find things on the internet. So if I go to Barnes and Noble, other than maybe the security camera, nobody's going to know what I picked up and, and leafed through. Mm-hmm. Um, if I go to barnesandnoble.com, you know, maybe not. Different um, story. Mm-hmm. When you're using one of the more popular web browsers, who knows about what you're browsing? Who sees that information? Mm. So the browser captures a lot of things right off the bat. Uh, and there are a lot of browsers. Everyone knows Chrome. Everyone knows Firefox. Uh, but, you know, we come across Edge, Safari, Opera, Google has one Bing. I mean, there's all sorts uh, of different browsers. There's private browsing now that we uh, are getting more and more questions about, which I'm really happy about. But when you're searching the internet, your browser just off, just the browser itself knows your IP address, your internet protocol address. So where you're from, it knows that you're sitting in New Jersey or Philadelphia or Rhode Island or New York just by your IP address. It knows your geolocation because it can usually attach that IP address to a certain block of numbers that maybe your internet provider has no, uh, knows about. It knows your mouse clicks. It knows when you're hovering over a photo. It knows the hardware and the software that you have installed. It knows whether you have a social media account that's running in that browser, even in a different uh, page. Uh, it knows your browsing history. It knows your image data. It knows your fonts. It knows your language. It grabs all this stuff from your operating system. So even if you're not logged in as David Sherry or a pseudonym, it knows all that about the person who's sitting in front of the keyboard at that time. So what are some ways to improve your privacy when you're using a web browser? I mean, on, on some phones, there's there's private mode. On some laptops, there's incognito mode. I mean, mm-hmm. how effective are those tools alone in improving your privacy? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, They improve your privacy. They don't totally give you 100% privacy, but they certainly improve it. What that does is it keeps certain aspects of your browsing private. Um, It's telling your browser when you're in either private or incognito not to store data, um, not to register cookies, not to register if you typed in a credit card number, any form fields you put in, any IDs and passwords you have in. It's your browser is not saving it. But that's just the browser aspect of it. Uh, Google will still know about it if you're connected to Google at the time. Um, It knows the sites that you visit. Uh, Your employer would know if you're using private or incognito browsing from your work computer, your employer still knows about it. If you're at home, your ISP will still know about it. It's just your browser that's not collecting it and sharing it with the browsing company. And when you close it down, it all goes away. All right. You're listening to Cookies, a podcast about technology, security, and privacy. We're speaking with David Sherry, the Chief Information Security Officer here at Princeton University. On our next episode, we'll talk with Mihir Shirsiger. He's a clinical lead at the Center for Information Technology Policy at Princeton and a lecturer in computer science. He's a co-author of a recent paper that spells out in startling detail everything you've wondered about but didn't want to know about how online platforms are allowing students to have their personal data exploited as the students use them for online learning. It's the 100th anniversary of Princeton's School of Engineering and Applied Science. To celebrate, we're providing 100 facts about our past, our present, and future. 
including some quiz questions to test your knowledge about the people, places, and discoveries who have made us who we are. Join the conversation by following us on Instagram at ePrinceton. That's the letter E, Princeton. But for now, back to our conversation with David Sherry. David, I'm guessing you're not on Instagram. I am not on Instagram. I am not on Facebook. I do have a professional account on Twitter, CISO at Princeton, where I share privacy and security with the Princeton community. And uh, I'm on LinkedIn, of course, with my basic resume. I often find that people who are in computer science who limit their social media to one or two platforms mm -hmm. tend to choose Twitter. Mm -hmm. um, that's interesting. Yeah. And I choose to do it, uh, Aaron, as a professional. So mm -hmm. every time I comment or forward or do something, I do it from my lens as the CISO at Princeton. I think if I had a private account, I'd be talking more about sports and religion and <laughs> politics and books. And that's where I think I'd get myself in trouble. So knowing I just have that professional, professional one and I'm representing Princeton University, my tweets are very different. That's right. I, I know that feeling. Yes. I, I, I run the, uh, the engineering Twitter account and it's okay. a very different uh, voice. That's right. Okay, well, let's let's talk about DuckDuckGo. Okay, um, what is DuckDuckGo? How can it improve your privacy, and what are the trade-offs? Yeah, wow. So I like DuckDuckGo. I've been a fan of DuckDuckGo since it started. Legend has it it started in somebody's garage in Newton, Massachusetts, I believe. I don't really know if that's true, but um, all I know is I'm thankful that whoever started it put the work into it to keep it going. Uh, DuckDuckGo is an internet search engine, just like Google, just like Yahoo, just like Bing but it's built for privacy. Uh, it stops you from being tracked. Um, you know, as we just talked about, browsers keep by keeping tabs on what you're up to, things like the website you visit, the items you purchase, the videos you watch. With DuckDuckGo, your searching is your business. Uh, they're very good about privacy. They're very good about openness, about what they collect and what they don't collect. Um, and it's just a way of not allowing all that other stuff that your browser has collected and anything that Google or Yahoo would collect that they can serve up ads with, you don't get that on DuckDuckGo. And there's positives and negatives to it, but for most people, the positives uh, way outweigh the negatives. Mm. I mean, is it as intuitive a search engine? Um, I mean, I usually pe people say I'm Googling something, right? And that tends to be because Google has been the go-to browser. Right. Yeah. Uh, I'm mm -hmm. sorry, the go, forgive me, the go-to search engine. Correct. Um, mm -hmm. do you lose any, uh, functionality, any, any intuitiveness with, uh, DuckDuckGo? So 15 years ago, um, the search would not have been as deep and as robust as Google. I would say it's on par or at least in the 90, 95 percentile. Um, the great thing about DuckDuckGo is, um, first of all, it doesn't use pages. It's continuous streaming. You know how people say, I only look at the first two pages of Google. Well, DuckDuckGo, you could go on forever because it's just one continuous feed. It's really an algorithm that's based on the relevance to what you're looking for and the perceived mm -hmm. popularity of the internet about who has used it and how long they stay there. And the other great thing is, um, if you're, our listeners don't realize it, Aaron, if you put something into Google, uh, in a Google search engine, and I put the exact same phrase in, our results are going to be different because Google, use, Google uses what's called filter bubbles, and it knows everything it can about you from your past searching, your past web browsing, your past purchasing mm. habits, what you've watched on YouTube, what uh, is coming in and out of your email, and your habits would be very different from my habits. And what they try to give you is what they think you want to see. Um, 
in this heightened political arena that we're in now, if it's a person that's constantly looking at left-leaning uh, materials, the web results are going to give left, left-leaning left results. And if it's a person that's right-leaning, you're going to get right-leaning results. Um, I find that to be disheartening. Um, mm-hmm. I don't want my browser to tell me what it thinks I want to know. I want to be challenged and do my own homework and find alternative uh, viewpoints and make my own decisions. There's a great book by uh, Eli Pariza, who's uh, a fellow, I believe, currently at Princeton, or was at least before um, the pandemic. And he wrote a great book called Filter Bubbles that talks about how they got Google gathers all this and uh, tells us what we want to know, what it thinks it wants to know. DuckDuckGo doesn't do that. If you typed in a phrase looking for something and I typed a phrase looking for something, 99% of the time, it's going to come up exactly the same. Mm. So let's talk about Tor. Oh, okay. Um, how is Tor different from DuckDuckGo and uh, what, what do you gain or lose by using it? Mm. Well, Tor is a, a browser, but it's really an ecosystem more than just a browser that you could use uh, on any one of your operating systems. Um, it started back actually in the mid 90s. The US Navy was looking for a way to communicate sensitive information uh, privately. And the mm-hmm. Naval Research Lab came up with something called onion routing. Now, picture the old analogy about peeling back the onion. That's where this comes into play. It was a kind of technology that would protect your internet traffic with layers of privacy. Um, And by 2003, it became what was known as the Onion Routing Project, or easily acronymed as TOR, and was available for the the public. And uh, at its core, TOR is really used to anonymize your data. It's uh, a browser that can be installed that makes it difficult, if not impossible, for any snoops to see your webmail, your search history, your social media posts, your online activity. Uh, And of course, because of this, uh, Tor has somewhat of a bad reputation on the dark web because uh, the bad aspects, the bad guys use it for their traffic and, you know, money laundering, drug running, whatever. Uh, We could go on and on and have a whole podcast on that because of its anonymity. So, but it's open to the public. Um, It's in use on every college campus. I'll tell you that. Um, And it's a good product. So what's a VPN? I mean, I know we use one at work, but how difficult and expensive uh, is it to use one at home? Yeah. So very easy to use one at home. VPN stands for a virtual private network. And all it does is create an encrypted tunnel or encrypted traffic from your device that you have it installed on to whatever device you're going to. From a work environment, we use it so that when Princeton people are at home and everybody at Princeton was, was at home since March of 2020, it makes their home computer or even their Princeton device look like it's on the Princeton network. If you did not have a VPN installed and you tried to get to campus resources that require you to be on campus, you can't get there. When you start the virtual private network for Princeton, it connects your device to the Princeton network and you can be anywhere around the globe and look like you're uh, you're there. From a home perspective, you can run it on your phone, you can run it on your home device. All it does is gives you that uh, privacy and anonymity of encrypting your traffic uh, going back and forth. So your ISP doesn't know about it, your browser doesn't know about it, and it can it be, make it very difficult to be snooped or stolen by uh, a, a criminal at that time. You were speaking before about how Google collects all this information about you coming from all sorts of different uh, areas. Um, would a VPN help fight that? A VPN does help fight that because it hides your traffic and it hides your IP address. So it would still collect other 
uh, areas, but um, it reduces it greatly. It reduces it greatly. Mm -hmm. And it keeps the real private piece, you know, the, the emails and the traffic that's going back and forth, the real private pieces. Maybe, you know, you're okay saying, oh, I'm using, you know, a Windows operating system that needs to be patched. And that's okay if somebody knows that. But if you're sending an email for, to something about a job offer or to buy a house, you, you want to keep that private. And a VPN is a good solution for that. Um, so how does a VPN work with a phone? I usually, When I think of a VPN, I think of... Uh the computer that I'm talking to you on now. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. How do you, how do you do that? Same thing. You have to install a VPN client on your phone. You can find those. Um, we do not, as the information security office, we find it very hard not to rec uh, hard to recommend products, but we tell people you go to PC magazine, you search top 10 VPNs or top 10 email clients or top 10 whatever, and read, choose the one that's best for you. But it installs on your phone. I have one on my phone. And when I need to do private communications, certainly back to uh, the university, I fire up my VPN. That way they have my traffic from my phone to the wireless tower located up the street to how many other wireless towers it gets to Verizon before it connects back into the university is all encrypted and the data cannot be looked at. In the absence of a VPN, is, is a phone any in, inherently any less secure than a, uh, a laptop? So it all depends on the connection that you're making. If your phone is connected to the 5G network, there are some security built into that, not 100% security. Uh, just like if you took your laptop into the local coffee shop and hit their wireless, um, you know, you have no privacy on that unless you fire up a VPN. They're, that wireless uh, access point in that coffee shop is going to be looking at all of your traffic. So same thing with a phone. 5G is, is better than your phone connecting to the wireless, uh, once again, of the local coffee shop or your uh, neighbor across the street or any other wireless access point that's wide open. When I'm using my phone and I send a text message, how private is that communication? I mean, is anybody seeing that other than the person I'm intending to send it to? <laughs> uh, well, I don't think anybody is sitting at the other end, Aaron, wondering what you're texting, you know, your friends. That, But it certainly um, is available to the company of the messaging system that you have and the phone system that you're using. Um, mm -hmm. They have access to those messages. Texting is is not the most secure uh, <laughs> mode of communication that you can think of. Those are being stored somewhere and somebody could have access to it if they wanted to. So, I mean, I hear about uh, texting services like Signal or Telegram. Mm -hmm. I mean, is that really only important if you're, you know, a high level government official or uh, a spy? Mm. Why, wh why would you want to secure your texting um, mm -hmm. service? Sure. Uh, once again, it's just that different different levels of, of people's personal preference about their privacy. Um, I wouldn't want Verizon or the chat uh, program that I use on my phone to know the things that I'm chatting up with my wife or my children or uh, private signal, uh, private chat rooms with my staff when we're talking about incidents that are going on. So Signal gives me that. We use Signal because that gives me that um, sense of protection and sense of privacy. Um, signal is all of the messages are encrypted by default. Mm -hmm. So it's it's always on. Uh, you can shut it off, but be, why use it if you're at that point? So we know we have encryption. The data is stored encrypted on the device. Most people use it on their phone. Some people have it on their desktop as well. 
So that's all encrypted. So if the device is ever lost or stolen, you know, it's just gobbledygook to the person. Um, and the only thing that's stored on the signal servers for each account is the phone number that you registered with, the date and the time that you joined the service, and the date that you last logged in. That's all they know about you. Uh, the information they mm -hmm. keep is very, uh, very, um, very small and very private. And, um, you know, it's recommended by some of the greatest security thinkers in the world today, which is a pretty good recommendation that if they use it, you know, I, I would say, why doesn't everybody use it? So email has been around for decades. Uh, when I first started using email, it just felt like a, like I'm sending a letter to somebody, uh, mm -hmm. only I'm typing it on my uh, uh, gigantic computer. Um, at what point did email become a privacy risk and, and why? <laughs> um, can I say that the, the day the first one was sent? It became a really? privacy risk. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so on that gigantic computer, it so there were there were privacy concerns. Well, then too? there was probably not a lot of security built into it. Uh, whether someone was actually trying to sniff that traffic or trying to find the original ones, I just you know, there's a lot of things that were have evolved since computing really exploded. You know, 60s, 70s, 80s. That security wasn't built in. Security was an afterthought. Even when the internet was being built, security was an afterthought, which is job security for those of us that are in it, and something that we have to keep up with every day. But um, no, overall, uh, email, especially uh, Gmail and Yahoo, if we'll go back to AOL and CompuServe and BBN Planet and all those, those were never built for security. The the traffic was not encrypted, so it could be sniffed or they could have a man-in-the-middle attack. It was never encrypted at the front end, the back end. So um, whatever server that was on, the administrators had access to it. Um, you know, it's we've always said when you're sending an email, it's almost like sending a postcard. And uh, mm. when you send a postcard, everyone in the U.S. Postal Service has the ability or the capability of reading the back of that about, you know, your recent trip to Paris or something. Um, I'm a former postal employee. I can tell you that that very rarely happens, but the capability is there because the writing's right in front of it. But you take that postcard and you put it in an envelope and you lick it and you seal it. Now it makes it a lot more difficult. Email is kind of like a postcard. It travels all over the place and anyone who's in that location has the capability of reading it. Um, so, you know, encrypted email and private email is the way to go. Uh, certainly corporate email, like at Princeton, we have a lot more uh, privacy built into it and we build it for security and we build it for privacy. But my comments before were mainly on the public ones like Gmail and Yahoo and other things that we, you would get for free. So who's, who's seeing that, those private emails? So once again, it's not somebody sitting there approving it and fixing your typos and spell checking before it goes on to the next person. It's just if I am sending a, an email to a person, let's say in Western Canada, um, how many servers does that have to go through before it gets there and how many touch points and how many of those copies are saved and who has access to it? So every system administrator uh, at any enterprise has escalated privileges and the power and the authority to read things like that. They're not supposed to. We sign confidentiality agreements. And if you're a certified security professional, you take an ethics oath every year not to do that. But it still has the capability of being read because it's not encrypted. It's there in clear text at every one of the stops. So that's what makes um, email not as private and not as secure as a lot of other mediums that you could use to send data. Is that more of a, a hypothetical risk that people can't have their email looked at, or is it? Is there a lot of documented cases of people's emails being 
backed into. Yeah. So certainly the, uh, there's less and less because it's easier to find out things. Uh, phishing emails, just going in and getting the person's ID and password and going reading them that way is the easiest way. But in the early days of email and wireless, remember, wireless wasn't ubiquitous. You had to really find it. Um, I recall a, a time I was walking through New York City with my niece and I stopped and I was looking at the foundation of a building and she said, what are you looking at? And I was looking at the mocks and I said, somebody can, this is, gives me enough information that I can get free wireless access here. I can read through this cryptography and say, if I sat here with my laptop and opened up, I've got enough information that I can use the wireless in this building. And that's because you can find wireless in a lot of places. It was called war chalking. And, um, uh, you could walk around New York City if you could understand the code that was written. You could get free wireless. Now, all of a sudden, wireless shows up uh, at coffee shops and at restaurants, and uh, attackers know that people sit there and want to do their shopping. So they start sniffing the traffic. They look for emails. They look for credit cards going by. It's getting less and less because there are other ways for the criminals to do this. Uh, but hypothetical, yes, does it happen? Less and less, but still can be done. The bottom line is email is really not a secure platform. At Princeton, you know, we say we cannot send restricted or confidential information via email. We we have other options to doing that because it's just not it's just not protected. Are there more secure email services than uh, the most popular ones? Uh, certainly, um, just off the top of my head, Proton Mail, uh, Mailvelope, Mailpile, uh, FoundCube, ScriptMail, GMX, FastMail. There's a whole host of them if you start going through it. We Encrypt, FairMail, FlowCrypt. Um, okay, I think that's and what. What do they all have in common? Uh, they all have in common that they're built for security. Um, if we could take one of the most popular ones, Proton Mail, another thing that's used by a lot of uh, security thinkers. So. Um, that's, a, that's a good recommendation for it. That was developed by scientists at MIT and CERN. It's based in Switzerland, which has huge privacy and security uh, laws. It's completely open source, so you can check it out. And basically, that offers end-to-end encryption plus a lot of other security features that keep the communications private. Um, even the company that's hosting your mail does not have the message text. It just has the message headers of who, when, and where, and why. Um, so, you know, uh, that's just the way to go. If you want your mail to be kept private, you don't want to be using the public ones like Gmail and Yahoo. You want to be using something like Proton Mail or Mailvelope. So finally, we've spoken about a lot of different uh, ways to secure your uh, online activity, but it's a lot of work to do all of them. People can pick and choose among them. Mm -hmm. um, how do we know which of these steps? are warranted and, and which of these are better suited to, again, a spy or a high level government official? I mean, how do we, how do we strike a balance between doing the right thing and still being functional? Sure. Yeah. The great thing is you can be functional with all these things, uh, with the free one, all the paid versions, you can be, uh, you certainly can be functional, uh, with any, like anything else There's a trade-off. Um, you know, we use two-factor authentication now to get into a lot of our systems, both personally and professionally. That's a trade-off. To get that extra level of security, you have to click that thing on your phone to say, yes, this is me. Um, so you have to strike a balance. I, I talked at the beginning, Aaron, about everyone's privacy level is a little different. Yours would be different than mine. It'd be different from the next two people that we talked to. So you have to say, how far do I have to go to protect my privacy? As a security professional, I take it kind of seriously and I will take all these steps. But sometimes it takes a negative event for people to, you know, 
jump on the bandwagon. They say, oh, this will never happen. This will never happen to me. And the next thing you know, maybe their bank account has been drained and it's, they trace it back to a phishing email that they had or uh, a hacked website that they had a credit card stored. You know, I don't scroll credit cards on any browser um, because I just don't, browsers aren't built for that. And I don't know the security posture of the people who are protecting it. Um, I use a password manager to protect all my passwords. So they're all long, crazy strong. I don't even know half of my password, maybe three quarters of my passwords anymore. Um, but I don't keep the password to my financial, uh, re my, my retirement in there because that's the level of uh, privacy that I choose that I want to keep that in a safe in my home. But, you know, uh, my login for Home Depot or websites I visit, I keep that in a password manager. So it's really a personal choice um, as to what level of privacy, what level of security, and then the effort it takes to do that. Well, we've been speaking with David Sherry, the Chief Information Security Officer here at Princeton University. Uh, David, thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. This has been really interesting. Right. I really enjoyed the conversation, Aaron. I'm real thankful that you asked me to speak. I want to thank David as well as our recording engineer, Dan Kearns. Uh, thanks as well to Emily Lawrence, Molly Sherlock, Neil Adelinter, and Stephen Schultz. Cookies is a production of the Princeton University School of Engineering and Applied Science. This podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and other platforms. Show notes and an audio recording of this podcast are available at our website, engineering.princeton.edu. If you get a chance, please leave a review. It helps. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Princeton University. I'm Aaron Nathans, Digital Media Editor at Princeton Engineering. Watch your feed for another episode of Cookies soon. Peace. <laughs>